The following message is from Westway Christian Church in Scottsbluff, Nebraska. If you'd like to know more about us, go to westwaychurch.com. Thank you for listening. Well, good morning. If we haven't met, my name's John, and I'm one of the pastors here. And I also have a cool office during the week. So I thank you as much as Joe does. Um, I want to encourage you today to open your Bible to Romans chapter 6 and read along with us. You can, um, you can do that in your Bible. You can also uh, turn on the YouVersion app on your phone, and we have an event in there that has all of the verses that we're going to be talking about today. And while you're doing that, I want to remind you kind of of the background, the context of what we've been talking about over the last month and a half now with the church at Rome. Um, The church which started out as uh, Christianity, which started out as a branch of Judaism, was was shaken in Rome when the Jewish believers were exiled from Rome for five years. Uh, Before they left, they they had this place of power and position. They They were the leaders within the church. And then they were exiled. And when they returned, what they found was they were no longer in charge. The people who had become Christians in their absence and the Gentiles who were there before them um, had cast aside many of the Jewish traditions that were sorted, kind of grandfathered into the Christian experience. Uh, We've talked about them, things like food laws and the keeping of the Sabbath and the rite of circumcision. These things will become more prevalent as we dig deeper into Romans over the next several weeks. And obviously, when these Jewish believers returned home, there was a lot of tension. There was a lot of disunity. Uh, They weren't able to live on mission. And and it's for this reason that Paul is writing this letter to the church at Rome to, to reorient them, to remind them of who they are, to remind them that unity was important. And I think in our own time today, we see similar disunity. We we argue about politics. We name and we shame people who believe differently than us. When others don't follow the same practices as us, when, when Christians don't do the exact same things in the exact same way that we do, we write them off as non-Christians or we write them off as liberal. We use these words. When the, when the music's too loud or the auditorium is too warm or when the communion table gets moved, we, we freak out. We begin to think that these are the things that define us as a people of God. But they, the Christians, the people in Rome, they were supposedly a people who had been brought together in unity under the authority of Jesus Christ. So regardless of what their differences were, they were brought together in unity under Jesus Christ. And this is true in our lives as well. They were Christians. The Jews had the same exact Holy Spirit that the Gentiles had. And guess what? As Christians today, we have that same Holy Spirit dwelling inside of us. They were Christians. They were righteous before God and each enabled and empowered with the power from the Spirit to live the life filled with peace and joy and hope and a new relationship with God. We talked about all of that last week from Romans chapter 5. And see what was supposed to happen as these people lived this new life out, the people who weren't yet Christians would see that and they would be filled with the desire to have it. They would be filled with the desire to have the same peace that those Christians had. They would be filled with the desire to have the same joy that those Christians had. And the reality is their story is our story. See, when we, when we live the Christian life as we have been enabled and empowered by the Holy Spirit, 
and we demonstrate what that life looks like, not just to ourselves in this room, but outside of this place, online, in our community. Believers, non-believers ought to look at us and say to themselves, I want what they have. Why can't I respond in joy when I face hardships? Why does, why does my neighbor who I know is a Christian, like why do they have so much peace? How come they never get embroiled into Facebook messenger wars? Like what is it about that that's taking place? And through Christ, we've, we've been included in God's kingdom. We have all of these things. But there's this question, and Paul's going to address it today in Romans chapter 6. Well, if this is true, then why do we still struggle with sin? You ever wondered that? Like I read Romans chapter 5, and I see all of these things that are, that are available to me. Why do I still struggle with sin? How do we respond to the sin that constantly is surrounding us? How about the ability to be unified as Christians? Like if we have this together and we're all worshiping the same Father, the same Son, and the same Holy Spirit, why can we not be unified? Why are we divided over these things? How can we live the Christian life? It's got nothing but questions. How do people of differing backgrounds, ethnicities, and socioeconomic statuses live and serve and love together as God's people? How do, we, how do we do this? How do people who sin differently than one another come together to worship God? See, the things that are available to us, peace, joy, hope, and a new relationship with God, like they ought to change us. But there's still sin. And it's into that sin while we, were, while we were helpless and while we were unable to follow God that Jesus has come to deliver us from our sin. Sin still tempts us. The law still calls us to be obedient to us, to it. Don't we ask, how come we don't have to follow the Old Testament laws? What, what, what gets me out of following those laws? Like if I follow them, then I'll be a good, more moral person. We still have our flesh and we're still going to die. And Paul is going to answer these three things, sin, the law, and our flesh and death over the next three chapters. These things are powerful to us. We still struggle with sin. And the question is Why? Why does this happen? How do we respond? See, when we look at what's happening in Rome at this time when this is written, the Jewish believers would say this, the way to respond to all of the sin around us is more Torah, more law. There's actually a Jewish saying, and it's in the Mishnah, and it says, the more Torah, the more life. The more I follow the law, the more I will be alive. But if we read back over the past few chapters, we see Paul telling a different story. The law actually doesn't give life. Instead, it tells us and convinces us and reveals to us that we're sinners. And the Gentile believers, they would have had two different responses. The first one was, we don't have to live the Torah life. We don't have to keep all these rules and regulations. 
We don't have to do all of those things. And then the second one was this. If the law doesn't save us, if, if I don't have to keep the law and I can still be righteous in God's sight, then what I can do is I can take advantage of God's grace. I can live however I want to because I'm not bound by the law. I have freedom in Christ, which is something we'll talk about in a few chapters. Like I can live my life however I want to because the law doesn't matter to me. And the reality of it is, is both of those answers are wrong. What Paul's going to do in beginning in this chapter is he's going to, he's going to tell us of a new, of a new way, a third way that helps us deal with our sin. I want you to remember one of the things we've been talking about over the past several weeks is that there are really three different audiences that Paul is speaking to. Paul's talking to all of them, the entire church. Paul's talking to the Jewish people, and he's going to talk to the Gentile people. And what we have to do is, when we're reading this, trying to determine who Paul's talking to. Which of those three audiences is the person? And the Gentiles are up in chapter 6. Here's what they've just heard in chapter 5. The fullness of God is available to you. So to the Gentile mind, what they're hearing is like we can sin all we want because we're saved and God's grace covers it. The more sin, the better off we are. And Paul has something to say to that in verses, verses 1 to 4 from Romans 6. Well then, should we keep on sinning so that God can show us more and more of his wonderful grace? Of course not. Since we've died to sin, how can we continue to live in it? Or have you forgotten that when we were joined with Christ Jesus in baptism, we joined him in his death? For we died and were buried with Christ by baptism. And just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glorious power of the Father, now we also may live new lives. See, over Paul's time as a, as a missionary, what he was accused of was, was grace to the extreme. That no one actually had to keep the law. The law didn't matter. This is what people would have heard as Paul preached grace. And this is what people hear today. As Paul preaches and teaches grace, what people can often hear is, well, then I don't have to follow the law. I have no rules. I don't have to keep the Old Testament. None of this matters to me because Jesus has fulfilled it so I can live my life however I want to. And what Paul is saying boldly in these first four verses is, yeah, that's just totally wrong. That's not the way this works. What he's doing is he's telling the believers the reality of what happened to them when they became believers. He's explaining to them what actually transpired when they began to follow Jesus. And he says this, he says, we've died to sin. When you entered into this relationship with God, you died to sin. To which we ought to ask a question. Well, how did that happen? Well, I love Paul because he always answers the questions that we have. He says, when we were joined with Christ Jesus in baptism. See, sometimes I think we think that baptism is this kind of this initiation right into Christianity. It's just this thing that I'm just supposed to do and it doesn't really have any meaning, doesn't really have any purpose. But baptism isn't something that we do just because all of our friends at camp are doing it. 
Baptism isn't something we do just to enter into the Christian life as, as a rite of passage. It's not an empty ritual. What Paul is trying to communicate to the Romans and then to us is, you were not baptized for nothing. This wasn't just some thing that you did. Something spiritually significant happens at baptism. We listed all these verses in you version. See, when we're baptized, the spiritual thing that happens is, means that we're dead to sin. That's what Paul just said here. It saves us through the cleansing of our consciences. Conscience, conscience, yeah, consciences. That's a tough word. You should say that. Consciences. It saves us through the cleansing of our consciences. That means we don't have guilt and shame from sin. It identifies us as Christ's own through the reception of the Holy Spirit. See, something spiritual happens when we're baptized. It's not empty ritual. It's meaning and purpose. It helps us die to our sin. In fact, it kills us to our sin. And I think if we wonder why, why we're wrapped up and caught up in different sin patterns, a question that we ought to ask ourselves is, have we died to our sin? If you're a Christian and you've, and you've been baptized and you're wrestling through these things, the question that we ought to ask is, why was I baptized? What meaning did it have? Again, did I, did I just do it at camp because all my other friends were doing it? As a youth minister, I heard that one all the time. As a lead pastor, I've heard that from adults all the time. What was my baptism for? See, it's the hope and the joy and the peace that comes from God that enables me to get up in the mornings. That allows me to live a life that's, that's joyful and aware of what's going on around me. This provides Christians with meaning, power, and purpose. And if you don't have this, I would, I would encourage you that maybe it's time for you to submit to Christ in your life. Maybe this today, maybe, maybe it's time. You've heard this before. It's nothing new. It's just the gospel. And I want to encourage you if these are the things that you're missing in your life, the path is Christ. But the Romans didn't just die with Christ. They were raised to new life with him. So we die to our sin, but then we're raised to life. Have you noticed that, that as we read throughout the Bible, God just never leaves us in the lurch, but he always offers something more for us? It's kind of a bad news, good news. You're a sinner. You're a rebel against God. Oh, and here's how you can be back in right relationship with God. See, the Christian life is not, to meant, is not meant to be this thing of guilt and shame where I just constantly feel bad because I'm a sinner before God. No, he loves you and he cares you and he provides for you a way out. And then the question is, what we have to ask is the reality of sin is around us. How do we live out this new life? Now that I've been raised to new life in Christ, how do I live? What do I do? Again, I love Paul because he always answers the questions that we have. These are verses 5 to 11. Since we have been united with him in his death, 
we will also be raised to life as he was. We know that our old sinful selves were crucified with Christ so that sin might lose its power in our lives. We are no longer slaves to sin. For when we died with Christ, we were set free from the power of sin. And since we died with Christ, we know we will also live with him. We're sure of this because Christ was raised from the dead and he will never die again. Death no longer has any power over him. When he died, he died once to break the power of sin. But now that he lives, he lives for the glory of God. So you also should consider yourselves to be dead to the power of sin and alive to God through Christ Jesus. How do we demonstrate this new life? How do we show other people, starting in this room and and going outside of this space, how do we demonstrate to other people that we are alive? Well, we look forward to a better story. We see that there's something more for us. I, I want you to notice the verb tenses in these verses. He says, we have been united with him in his death, and we will also be raised to life as he was. See, something happened when we, when we first enter into this relationship with God. We sang about it earlier. We're justified. We're made righteous before God. That's a finished work. It's a finished process. God sees us as righteous because of what Christ has done. He doesn't see us as people who are still mired in sin. He sees us as people who are righteous, who are justified. Finished work, done, can't be undone. We're righteous, we're justified. But there's, but there's something else. It's this being raised to new life. Being raised to new life. See, that's a, that's a present and a future tense verb. And what that means is, is, this, is this is going to be an ongoing process. So I am now in the process as a follower of Christ of being raised into new life. This is a perpetual and consistent action that we're going to undertake. The Christian word for this is sanctification. Maybe you've heard that word before. Sanctification. It's not a static one-time thing. We don't believe that we are immediately sanctified and made holy. We're righteous. God sees us that way. But there are things that, that are going to be worked out of our lives as we continue to live. That's a process of sanctification. And it's not something that just happens. We spent a lot of time in our Thursday night small group talking this past week about Romans chapter 5. Talked about enduring through problems. See, whenever we're surrounded by problems and trials, what we're supposed to do is we're supposed to endure through them. That's a process. We learn how to do that. This endurance develops strength of character. That takes time. And over time, as our character is strengthened, our hope grows. See, this is something that we strive for. It's something that we participate in, but we don't contribute to. Right? We participate in our sanctification, but we don't contribute to it. Just because I sin less today doesn't make me more holy tomorrow. 
I'm not contributing to it, but I'm participating. I'm willingly going along with what God is calling me to do. And we do these things through, through obedience and action. Like we have, we have a choice. See, there's an expense that's on our part. And we talked about this several weeks ago. Sometimes it's, it's really easy for us to fall into this mindset of, well, well, there's no cost to being a Christian because Jesus has paid it all. And if anything I do, I'm going to add works and we don't believe in a work salvation. So I don't do anything. Well, that's not participation. That's not obedience. That's not me living out the life that God has for me. And, and this isn't just me saying this. This is something that's biblical. After God made his covenant with Abraham, if you remember, Abraham had to respond. God made the covenant. God said, Abraham, this is what I'm going to do. And to show that you have accepted it, Abraham, like you have to respond. And that response was circumcision. I've been reading through Exodus um, in the mornings. And last week I, wrote Ex- I read Exodus 23 verses 37 to 30. What's happening is God is sending the, the, the people, his people, the Israelites, the Hebrews, into the promised land after, after 400 years of slavery. And God tells the people something really interesting. He says, I will send my terror ahead of you and create panic among all people whose lands you invade. I will make all your enemies turn and run, but I will not drive them out in a single year because the land would become desolate and the wild animals would multiply and threaten you. I will drive them out a little at a time until your population has increased enough to take possession of the land. See, this is, this is a process. And what's so interesting about this is, um, you know how God drove the Canaanites out? Through the Israelites. God didn't just act without them. He didn't act independently of them. He invited the Israelites to be his people and to participate in his work. And if you read through the books of Joshua and Judges, you'll see that this was a painstakingly slow and sloppy work. And isn't that a lot like our own sanctification? Isn't that a lot like the way God is making us into his people? Don't you wish it were faster? Don't you wish you didn't have the sin and the law and the flesh and your pending death? I know that's a terrible thing to think about on a Sunday morning. Wouldn't you like to not think about those things? But this is how God works. God invites us to participate with him. I love Matthew 16, 24. This is Jesus. He says, if any of you wants to be my follower, you must give up your own way, take up your cross and Follow me. The Christian life is is not without expense. It's not without cost. And there is nothing in that 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 earns our salvation. There's nothing in that that makes us more holy because we did this thing, because we've already got that from God. We've already been justified. We've already been made righteous. But so much of what we talked about again this last Thursday was like whatever made us think that the Christian life was easy. 
Where did that concept come from? Like, I would like to know the first person that said that. Because I just don't get it because that's not, that's not the image that we see in Scripture. That we're just saved and we have to do nothing and we can just do whatever we want to. Last week, when we run into problems and trials, we know they will help us develop endurance. And endurance develops strength of character. And character strengthens our confident hope of salvation. There's nothing easy about the Christian life. If, you are, if you're here for the first time today, and you are thinking like, I need to become a Christian so my life will be easier. Man, that is just the wrong answer. <laughs> And that sounds really bad, but it's, but it's really not. It's really good news because God is doing a work in us. See, God is after fixing what's really wrong with us, not what's superficially wrong with us. And I don't, I don't know about you, but what I need fixed in me is what's really wrong with me. It's my heart. I don't need, just need the bad fruit picked off my tree I need the roots dealt with, and that's what, that's what God does. And so what we do, because Christ is alive and we're being made alive, what we do is we exhibit the behaviors of people who are alive. We act like, we live like we are actually alive. And good news, no one is asking you to be circumcised this morning. Okay, it's just not on the list. It's not what we're called to the only thing that we are called to is to love and act and serve and proclaim this life to others. That's it. That's it. Isn't that easy? I mean, what we do is we, we make talking about our faith and proclaiming Jesus as Lord so difficult. Like we're so concerned that someone's going to ask us about the dinosaurs and then it's all going to fall. Right? We just need to love people. We just need to serve people. We just need to talk about what Jesus has done. So where do we begin? Again, Paul just keeps answering all of our questions. Here's verses 12 through 14. Do not let sin control the way you live. Do not give in to sinful desires. Do not let any part of your body become an instrument of evil to serve sin. Instead, give yourselves completely to God. For you were dead, but now you have new life. So use your whole body as an instrument to do what's right for the glory of God. Sin is no longer your master, for you no longer live under the requirements of the law. Instead, you live under the freedom of God's grace. The Greek for verse 12 reads this way. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its desires. Here's another way. Do not let sin reign in your body which is subject to death. Here's, here's the translation for us. Your physical body is going to die and you only live once. So do not allow your one life to be controlled by something that is going to lead to a spiritual death. You get, 
get one shot, one life. And why would we give that life to something that is going to die spiritually? See, there's something that's worse than physical death, pain, and suffering. In our minds, that's, that's usually the worst thing that we think is going to happen to us. I don't want to suffer. I don't want to die. But Jesus says this, don't be afraid of those who want to kill your body. They cannot touch your soul. Fear only God who can destroy both soul and body in hell. See, there's something worse than physical pain and suffering. And that worst thing is being judged by God and being sent to separation, being sent to hell from him because of our sinfulness. There's something worse than physical death and destruction. But again, Paul, Paul doesn't just say, don't do something wrong. Don't not, just don't do the wrong thing, right? There's a counter to it. He says, use your body as an instrument of good for God's glory. Don't, don't not just do this thing, but now do this. Live life in a way that honors God and is a demonstration of his work in you. The Christian life is not reduced to don't sin, that would be a lame story. That would be a works story is what that would be. Because the less I sin, then the more works I do. And then I'm going to earn my way to heaven. And I think I'm going to get there. And God's going to hold this giant set of scales, right? And all my sins over here and all my works over there. And if the message of the gospel was simply don't sin. Even if I have one more good work than sins, then, then I'm in. But that's not the message of the gospel. In verse 14, he speaks, he speaks to each of the audiences. He's speaking to each member, the church, the Jew, the Gentile, and he wants all of them to hear what he's telling one another. He says, you are freed from the manner in which God's people in the Old Testament were under it. So the Old Testament people, they had to live a certain way. So when I say you're free from the law, what I mean is, is you don't have to keep it in the same way that they did. The law doesn't give you power to resist sin. Grace does. Because we have the Holy Spirit who dwells within us. He says sin is no longer your master. He's telling this to everyone. Sin is no longer your master. You're not bound by the law. He's telling the Jews this thing. Jews, you don't have to keep the law anymore. Instead, live under the freedom of God's grace. This is what he's telling to the Gentiles. And I want you to imagine for a moment, if you're a Gentile and your, your goal was, I don't have to keep the law anymore. I don't have to follow the law anymore. And now I have Paul telling me, I don't have to follow the law. I can do whatever I want to, right? Well then, verse 15 since God's grace has set us free from the law, does that mean we can go on sinning? Do you see how this is the exact same question that Paul begins the chapter with? Do you see how Paul has set up his audience? Of course not. Don't you realize that you become a slave of whatever you choose to obey? You can be a slave to sin, which leads to death. Or you can choose to obey God, which leads to righteous living. Thank God. Once you were slaves of sin, but now you wholeheartedly obey this teaching we've given you. 
Now you are free from your slavery to sin, and you have become slaves to righteous living. Because of the weakness of your human nature, I'm using this illustration of slavery to help you all understand this. Previously, you let yourselves be slaves to impurity and lawlessness, which led ever deeper into sin. Now, you must give yourselves to be slaves to righteous living so that you will become holy. When you were slaves to sin, you were free from the obligation to do right. And what was the result? You are now ashamed of the things you used to do, things that end in eternal doom. But now you're free from the power of sin and, become, and have become slaves of God. Now you do these things that lead to holiness and result in eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus, our Lord. One of the things that I do is I prep for a series when it's a book series. Is I have a bunch of legal pads and I just, I like hand write out the whole, the whole book. Paraphrase it on, a, on that notepad. And it helps me really get comfortable with the text. Um, for this particular series, you know, we talked a lot about ancient letter writing. Um, kind of felt like a little like a bit of a scribe as I was doing this at the beginning um, of the summer. And as I read Romans chapter 6, when I was done reading Romans chapter 6, at the top of, of my note for that day, I just wrote the phrase Stockholm Syndrome. I wonder if you know what that phrase is, Stockholm Syndrome. It's, a, it's actually a psychological condition in which hostages, hostages develop a psychological bond with their captors during captivity. Um, the, this term was first used in a 1973 bank robbery in Stockholm, Sweden, when four hostages were taken during a bank robbery. Um, after they were released, they refused to testify in court against their captors because they had developed this bond with the people that were keeping, keeping them captive. They wanted to protect them. They were looking out for them. Songwriter Derek Webb used the term as the name of his fifth studio album. He found it fascinating as a concept. I want you to listen to this in light of what we just read. People falling in love with or being infatuated with the forces that oppress them and ultimately want to kill and destroy them. Doesn't that sound like our relationship with sin? We're infatuated by it. Like, we don't want to do it, but we find ourselves constantly going back to it. Have you ever defended your sin to someone else? Has someone ever called you to account for your sin? And you talked about how it really wasn't that big of a deal. You could stop whenever you wanted. It wasn't really affecting or impacting that many people. I think Stockholm Syndrome perfectly describes our relationship with sin. The devil's out to kill and steal and destroy. And often, often, we go along with it without thinking. And when I say we, I mean we. We often go along with our sin without thinking. And when we do think about it again, we tend to minimize it. We tend to justify it. And this is, this is a huge mistake for us. Verse 19 tells us two things. It tells us 
Previously, you let yourselves be slaves to impurity and lawlessness, which led ever deeper into sin. Here's what you need to know about sin. Sin is never stationary or static. Sin is not limited. It doesn't stop. It only gets worse and worse and worse and worse and worse. Further into the hole you go. And I know, because I'm a human being who struggles with sin, I know that we don't believe that's true. I know that we think we have our sin under control. I know that we think sin is limited. But it's not. There are no depths to which we as humans will not go to flee from God. But here's, again, like bad news, good news. Now you must give yourselves to be slaves to righteous living so that you will become holy. See, in the same way that sin is not stationary or static, holiness is not stationary or static. We grow in it. We become more like Christ. And, and, and not as a work, not as a thing that we've done to earn, but something that we do to participate in what God's doing. See, God's given us the ability to live for him. He's given us the ability to live lives of holiness. And what we do is we participate. Chapter 5 was all about the story of Adam. It was a comparison and a contrast between Adam and Jesus. And if we remain in Adam's story, we're going to die. That's the story of Romans chapter 5 and 6. To remain in Adam's story is to die, but to live the story of Jesus is going to lead to eternal life. We will live. Jesus was killed and was resurrected, and he killed sin in the process. So then for us, we we don't tolerate sin. We don't cooperate with sin. What we are called to do is we we are called to pursue life in Christ in the same way that we pursued sin as if we were enslaved by it as if we have no choice but to be obedient to God because it's now who we are see Christ has transformed us so we want to pursue him David writes this this is uh, this is not in your you version as a deer pants after water So my soul longs for you. This is how we are to pursue righteousness. Here's Paul's answer to all of the questions that we asked earlier. Why do we struggle with sin? How do we respond to the sin that constantly surrounds us? How can we be unified as Christians? How can we live the Christian's life? Here's Paul's answer. Be a slave to righteousness. It's not through the law. It's not through doing whatever you want to do. It's being a slave to righteousness. What's amazing, and I discovered this this morning. We do these Bible reading plans on version. This morning's was reading Romans chapter 6. And 
as I read Romans chapter 6 this morning, it was, it was really weird for me because I've got all this context going on in the back of my brain about everything else that we've been talking about. But I jumped right in to Romans chapter 6, really kind of like it was really the first time I'd ever read it. And I don't know how that happened. But as I was reading it, um, what we see in Romans chapter 6 is a really simple gospel. It's an immediate call to holiness and obedience to God. See, we've been offered and given new life. And our response is simply to live differently because of it. To not live the old way of sin, but to live the new way. Because each and every one of us knows the consequences of the sins from our old lives. We should feel this verse in our brain. You are now ashamed of the things you used to do. Like we should feel the weight of that as Christians. Why would we continue to live in a way that only leads to death? Why would I continue to live in a way that only leads to death? And what I love about the gospel, I said it was simple. It's just, it's so easy. Become a, becoming a follower of Christ, honestly, is one of the easiest things you'll ever do. Living the life of a Christian, now that's another story. But for that, we have the Holy Spirit. But becoming a Christian is really easy. Here at Westway, it's four simple things. Believe that Jesus is who the Bible says he is. Just believe it. Repent of your sin. Admit your sin. Confess your sin. I promise you that you are not going to tell God something he doesn't already know. He knows. Confess your sin. We want to be baptized into Christ. We want to join him in his death and be raised to new life with him. We see this in the text we read today. And then we confess our new life. We proclaim it. We tell people about it. We talk about it. We simply live our lives as people who have been transformed by Jesus. It's, it's so easy and yet so difficult, so challenging. It's going to require endurance. It's going to require hope. Going to require character. And Jesus gives us each one of those things. Will you pray with me? God, I'm thankful for your word. I'm thankful that you answer all of the questions that we have. I'm thankful that the path to living is not hidden from us, it's not something that that we have to go on a snipe hunt for. But it's here. It's evident. It's plain. It's honest. I pray that we would seek to live the life that you have given us. That we would utilize the power that you have given us, the authority that you have given us to live in a way that honors you. And it's in your son's name we pray. Amen.